Welcome to Coach to Scale, how modern leaders build coaching cultures. I'm your host, Matt Benelli. Join me as we build a community of like-minded professionals who share the belief that effective coaching improves the performance of every team member. Our mission is to help leaders become better coaches. The Coach to Scale podcast is sponsored by Coachem, the world's first AI coaching execution platform that leverages evidence-based coaching to increase quota attainment. And with that, let's get started. Hello out there. I'm excited to sit down with today's guest. He's someone who brings a wealth of experience to the table. More importantly, he's a super interesting person, and we've known each other for a long time now, uh, more time than I'd probably care to admit because it tells me how much I'm getting, how, how old I'm getting. Uh, he's worked at companies like Oracle, Informatica, Big ID, Stack, and currently he's director of sales at Alation. Ben Kennedy, welcome to Coach the Scale. Thank you, Matt. Looking forward to the conversation today. Really looking forward to this, Ben. I feel like we're just going to codify a lot of the conversations we've had over the years, and we're going to put it in a uh, in, in this episode. So I, I I don't know how much new ground we'll be covering, but it's going to be great. It's going to be new to everyone else and uh, very interesting ground, uh, certainly for me. Let me get right into it, Ben. So. You've been doing this for a while. There's a lot of myths that are persistent in our business. What's one of those myths that you believe is misguided or maybe even complete BS, but you hear it all the time? Yeah, so, so good question. So one of the one of the things I, I, I'm a believer in and I think is a, a current myth is that um, sales um, is a formulaic process by which if you add sales capacity, you're going to add revenue. Um, and so meaning, you know, and sim- simply put more salaries equals more revenue. And in today's world, I think that's a myth. I, I think you really have to think about the quality of the people you're bringing on board, the uh, addressable market you're going after, or the, the ICP, the uh, ideal customer profile, and be thoughtful and intentional about how you build a sales organization. I've been a part of sales organizations. We follow that model. If we hire more, we'll sell more. Uh, and I've seen it backfire. And conversely, I've been in roles where we've kept the team small and tight um, and we've been more productive because we've been more intentional about our outreach. So that's one myth I think um, you know, modern sales leaders need to think about is, is adding capacity really going to add revenue or have you done the homework to identify your ideal customer profile and your addressable market? So it's like the old days, it was just you know call as many people, throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and see what sticks. The modern day version of that is just keep hiring people and, you know, the great results will follow. Um, and I, I love the words you used, you know, about thoughtful and intentional. What are some of the negative, what are the, some of the negative consequences of just hiring more people and expecting the revenue is not going to come? Yeah. So in my, in my experience, when you overhire, um, you are uh, the probability of the percentage of people on your team hitting quota decreases. 
So what happens is you overhire because typically, no offense, but typically someone in finance says, hey, we, we add capacity means we add revenue. So you're squeezing more sellers into the same TAM if you haven't added product or grown your TAM by some meaningful amount. And so the negative consequences are you have more people, but fewer people are making quota. That leads to uh, higher attrition, um, um, longer uh, ramping time for the team you have. And, it, and when, with your current sellers, they're probably looking at their territories thinking, hey, if, if the, the model the company is going after is to continually uh, squeeze my territory, what is the future going to hold for me? And you see some companies out there today, um, they're successful companies to be fair, but they've gone from maybe a, a seller has three or four accounts to then they had one account. Now they have one account, but there's three, four, five sellers on that account. Um, and, and look, some companies can make that work. And depending on the, the scale of your products in your company's portfolio or the market you're going after, that might be appropriate. So I'm not knocking the model. But I think you really have to be, to your point, intentional about how we're adding capacity to a sales model to make sure it's not just adding capacity for capacity's sake. Because the risk is you're going to have fewer people making their number, which leads to higher attrition. And one of the most expensive parts of a sales leadership role is that attrition, voluntary or involuntary. And never mind the uh, impact that that has on uh, a culture, um, you know, really yeah, a, yeah. a culture of excellence and, you know, the people who want to be on that team. But I get it, right? It it happens. Uh, it happens all the time. And, you know, m many would say we are coming out of that uh, period where maybe too much of that was done. Question for you is, is there a role for someone in your position, uh, the chief revenue officer, is there a role for sales leadership, senior sales leadership to go to the CEO, to go to finance, to go to the board and say, I know you want this. It, it's not going to happen. It, uh, the, there's not a, a role. There's a responsibility for a senior sales leader, particularly a CRO level person who's got a seat at the executive table to, to partner with the CFO, the CEO and say, look, like it's not as simple as, you know, capacity equals revenue and have a thoughtful conversation about how we're really going to grow this. If we think we're going to add X number of sellers, say it's 20 percent. Is the market, has the market increased by 20%? Is it growing faster than we thought? Are we adding products that are skews? We make an acquisition. Um, absolutely, it's, it's a responsibility of a senior sales leader in an organization to have that conversation because look, they're going to be the most impacted. Either they're going to overhire and to your comment about culture, like overhiring uh, for the wrong reasons has negative consequences. You start to dilute the culture um, through people having uh, you know, less success from a quota attainment perspective. And, and just to dilate on that, one conversation I've, I've, I've seen or heard is when uh, an entire team has hit quota. Um, so 100% of the reps on the team hit quota. Um, the perception is that must be a really rich territory. They can, they can hire more people and still be successful. And look, it's pretty uncommon, and let's be candid, that 100% of a team hits quota, at least consistently on, on an annual basis, I'm not just talking one quarter, I'm talking about the annual basis, 100% of the team hits their quota. I've been a part of this, I've seen this, um, where leadership says if that team is just too rich of a territory, we need to add capacity. Um, and look, I'm not saying it's the wrong answer to add capacity, but I would reward the teams that are hitting close to 100% uh, annual quota achievement uh, and say, look, you're doing the right thing 
continue to do that because that, those, those are the people that are making the most money and the most valuable for the company. And from a cultural perspective, you want to keep those people as productive as possible. If you, if you have a team of entirely top performers who are all making their number, exceeding their number, um, that's gold to hold on to. And you want to be careful how you tinker with that model. Absolutely. Especially if the business is achieving its goals. If the business is achieving its goals and the team members are, man, what a culture. That's gold. How do you bottle that and uh, and clone it rather than rather than blow it up? Uh, you, you have lived in, and grown up in and around uh, Silicon Valley. How's that shaped uh, you, your your perspective, your outlook, your career? Do you think it's had a had an impact at all? Yeah, growing up in, in the Bay Area, uh, you know, I'm from Palo Alto, live in the Bay Area today with my family. Uh, I've lived other places, both uh, domestically and internationally, as you're aware. Uh, yeah. But certainly the proximity to Silicon Valley and the culture of Silicon Valley um, is a part of who I am. I mean, we're, all, we're all a product of our environment. My environment where I grew up was uh, Silicon Valley. But uh, not only that, I've, I've worked... Um, I worked at Stanford University in the School of Engineering, and I saw the world of Silicon Valley from that university perspective where um, the university considered, the School of Engineering within Stanford considered itself the hub of the hub of the hub, meaning they said, we're not just Silicon Valley, we're not just Stanford University, um, we are the School of Engineering um, You know that pretty much the whole world tries to emulate from a technology entrepreneurial perspective. Um, so I had a really interesting, um, you know, vantage point working in that role in the School of Engineering at Stanford, and more generally, yeah, it's absolutely influenced my my life and, and my career. Um, partly because I get to see things and hear about things that are going on. That um, partly because it's important in this part of the world where technology is kind of the lifeblood of what we do. But also, I'm, I'm genuinely curious about what's coming out, and I'm genuinely curious about what the new technologies are. I will say, in full transparency, I've done a really horrible job of aligning to the macro trends that I've seen in, in my lifetime. Uh, for example, when when Google first got started in the late '90s, I was working at a software-based microprocessor company. We started losing people to a startup search firm. And back then in the 90s, there was Lycos and Yahoo and AskGs, a whole bunch of search engines. And we started losing some of our best engineers to this new startup, and we all thought they were crazy. And I told some of them, you're going to be back here in six months. Um, well, that startup was Google, and they <laughs> all went there, and you know they're retired very, very financially comfortably today. Same thing I missed um, I, when I was working at Stanford University, uh, Mark Zuckerberg moved out to the Bay Area, founder of back then, it was called thefacebook.com. And I hosted him on campus for a talk he was giving to the undergraduate community. And I posted on this on LinkedIn a year or two ago. I printed out his name badge. This is when thefacebook.com, as it was called, was only 15 or 20 employees. It was limited to university uh, participants only. It wasn't the company this today. And I printed out his uh, ID badge as Mark Zuckerman. And I handed it to him. I'm like, hey, Mark, you know, nice to meet you. Here's your you know, speaker badge. And he looked at it. He's like, hey, my name's Zuckerberg. And, I was like, yeah, sorry, I got it wrong. Like, no, nobody knew who he was. So, I, you know, my bad. Um, but I was like, I don't have time to print you another badge. And he's like, all right, you know, whatever. And then uh, I'm like, well, we got 30 minutes until your talk. So um, I got to do a couple of things. I'll meet you in, on the stage before we get going. Well, I went to the bathroom a few minutes later. I find him walking around the bathroom, taping up job advertisements for thefacebook.com saying, hey, we're hiring at thefacebook.com. 
um, you know, if you're looking for work, uh, you know, here's an email or something. So my point is, um, I remember my sentiment towards Mark Zuckerberg at the time, like this poor kid, he just moved his life from the East Coast, from Boston to San Francisco. He's going to get eaten alive by MySpace or by Friendster or by Google social platform. I'm like, this whole of the Facebook.com thing is just not going to last. Um, and I kind of watched him in pity as he gave this talk to the community and, um, you know, thought he'd go away and, you know, what is now Facebook or Meta has clearly proven me wrong as a prognosticator of successful technology companies in Silicon Valley. <laughs> so I, I've been on the wrong side of a lot of these kinds of things, um, which I don't try to be the, the predictor of the future in Silicon Valley, but it reminds me to be humble and that uh, my strength is not identifying the hot new technology trends, but it's aligning with what's working in the market and where I provide value in, in the data space more generally. All right. Well, I thought my uh, father-in-law was the only one who called it the Facebook, but um, yeah, there, there go, it goes back to you. Uh, so, all right, there's another trend, AI, right? Artificial intelligence. How, how are you thinking about that these days? That's the big buzz in Silicon Valley and really around the, around the world these days. Yeah, and just this morning, uh, I was on an all-hands call at my current company, Elation, and our CEO talked about um, his perspective of AI or generative AI. And, uh, and and so here we are, you know, January 2024, you know, generative AI, AI in general has been out for a bit. And his, um, his talk track was, hey, I think as much hype as there is in Gen AI, I think it's underhyped. I think we are going to see a transformational movement just in, in the marketplace in general about AI and Gen AI and how they can help companies, institutions, you know, education, et cetera, which it, that, that comment surprised me because there's been so much hype around Gen AI, particularly in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, there's all the drama with OpenAI uh, a month or so ago. I can't imagine, I've rarely seen a hype cycle as robust as the last 15 or so months in the Gen AI space. So, so to hear my CEO this morning say, I think it's still under hype, the best is yet to come, uh, really surprises me. Yeah, um, I'm affiliated with uh, Stage 2 Capital, as you might know, and I was out in the Bay Area, I think it was October, and um, the, the principals, Mark Roberge, uh, Jay Poe, they, they led a discussion about AI hype cycle, you know, you know, you know, is it is it real or is it hype? And they brought in uh, industry leaders, people like uh, your your CEO, uh, to talk about it. And many of them said the exact same thing, right? Like it's underhyped, and then provided a whole bunch of data uh, to support why they believed um, it was underhyped. So that said, um, most people who hear AI use the phrase, they, they kind of know what it is. If you're a little bit more advanced, you, you've you used chat GBT and you think that is AI. Um, is that what AI is? Uh, the, way, the way you're looking at it, the way you look at it for your business, is it chat GBT? Is it more? What is it? Yeah, well, let me, good question. Let me preface my response by saying I am not the AI or Gen AI expert. Uh, I don't claim to be, and I'm certainly not. Uh, but I think the question worth asking um, is in the realm of um, how do sellers uh, in the, the selling profession think about uh, or embrace generative AI? Um, and you and I had a conversation about the importance of AI. Should the importance of AI be thought about in terms of efficiency or effectiveness? And my uh, comment is I think AI and generative AI is an ability to, to improve productivity 
at the sales um, sales rep, sales leader, sales manager level. And let me give an example about that. Um, so you mentioned ChatGPT. So as I've shared, I, I personally use ChatGPT fairly frequently, maybe not daily, but probably weekly. Um, as an example, I'll use it um, to help me proofread um, executive communications or emails. I mean, I'll, I'll write it and I'll put it in. I'll give the prompt to ChatGPT to say, hey, here's an email I'm sending. Here's the context. Um, you know, give me some feedback on clarity, professionalism, brevity, whatever. Um, and, and probably nine times out of 10, the draft that I put into ChatGPT, what it spits back to me with my prompts is better than what I've written. And so I'll take that edited version, maybe edit a little extra and use that to be more productive, more efficient, more effective. And it's often, you know, I might write an email that has a lot of thoughts and, and brevity is important. So I'll ask ChatGPT, help me make this shorter and it'll, It'll write it down. And look, I can do that manually. I mean, I can know how to write, but um, to use an AI platform like ChatGPT has been uh, really helpful. And another other couple other examples, um, I had a, a someone apply for a, a job who was not familiar with what my company does. Um, we're in the data intelligence space, data management, data catalog. And so he uh, very quickly, uh, like within hours after me first talking about the role, sent me uh, a pitch and he's like, hey, here is the way I think Alation could pitch your product uh, platform to Expedia Group. He's based in Seattle. And I was like, wow, I was, I was fast. How did he turn this around? Let me look at this content. And I looked at it and it was a whole positioning paper like summary on how Alation can position our product, our catalog, and our solution um, to a company like Expedia Group. And I read it and I was like, this is really good. I'm like, but this guy doesn't work for my company. He doesn't know what I know and what we do. And he knows Expedia Group. So I called him. I'm like, how the heck did you put this together so quickly? He's like, Bard. I use Google Bard. And I pulled down Expedia Group's 10K. I went on your website and pointed it at a couple of things. And to be honest, I'm not quite sure all the mechanics of what he did. But he leveraged AI, in, in my opinion, in record time to turn around a product to me as part of an application for a job to my company that was really professionally done. I was like, look, if, you, if we hire you, you could basically take this and use this as your playbook to go get us into Expedia Group. And he's like, that's exactly my point. I'm trying to prove to you I can do this stuff on, on in real life. So, which is really cool because there's a lot of people out there calling for the death of a salesman and, you know, the death of a million other jobs because of AI. And it seems a lot like a lot of other technologies that have, uh, you know, come into fruition, which is people are afraid of it. Oh, it's going to change the world. It's going to kill us. It's going to hurt us. Be something to be fearful of. We need to defeat it. But rather you're saying it's not death of a salesman. It's the enablement of, of a salesperson. It, it helps them. Would that be fair? Yeah, I, I think so. And look, I think um, the so in my career, you can maybe you can maybe I, I maybe think of the generative AI movement from a selling and a seller's perspective as analogous to social selling. Ten, you know, number of years ago, dependent on the 10, 12 years ago, um, you know, social selling via primarily via LinkedIn was probably not top of mind for many sellers, even especially if you go back like 15 years. Um, social selling was seen as something different, something not needed. Um, but modern sellers, people who uh, understand the importance of staying on top of your game and always being a continuous student of your profession, um, those people embraced social selling, primarily LinkedIn, built a brand, built a reputation, 
um, leveraged uh, a, a network or platform like LinkedIn to say, hey, here's how I'm going to get better at my job. Uh, I think Gen AI is the same thing. It's, it's, it's got the ability to uh, impact the workforce, but I also think for the sellers, the professional sellers who really take this, this profession, this job seriously, Gen AI is another level of a platform that you can embrace that'll help you with productivity and help you be better at what you do. And should you be worried about losing your job? Not if you're good at what you do. Not if you embrace whatever you know revolution is coming from social selling to generative AI. There'll be something else out there in the future. Um, embracing that modern seller approach is the key to success in you know, long-term employment, I guess. So Ben, l- love how you connected that with social selling. One of the questions, though, is, okay, you talked about productivity, you know, that conversation we had a week or two ago, we talked about effectiveness, we talked about efficiency, you know, efficiency seems like it's a lot of the sales tools, a lot of the technologies enable sales professionals to be more efficient, but it doesn't help them be more effective at how they work and how they help the customer, right? So sales effectiveness is a little bit different. How does, how can AI benefit the customer? How can a salesperson's use of AI benefit the customer? Yeah. So again, with the the context of my response, and I, I'm not the expert and don't claim that, like, there's no one answer to that question, right? Like, because AI and generative AI um, is a, a there's a lot in to, uh, to unpack in that world. Um, but I, I, what I've seen from effectiveness or efficiency in, in leveraging AI are things like, um, I'm not giving a pitch because I don't work for them. There's a company called Lavender.ai, and they help do mm. kind of email optimization. And I, I, they gave me a pitch a year or so ago on their product to try to sell the platform to me. And, um, and it was really, uh, so they, I had them do their demo to me as a potential customer. And uh, the technology, this is maybe a longer answer to your question than I was anticipating, but the technology um, behind Lavender AI or just AI in general to be able to do targeted emails uh, or outreach in general was so uh, well done. And their platform and other platforms do this will download data from LinkedIn or Twitter or wherever you have your publicly available information and create a profile about what kind of messaging will resonate with you personally. So... Uh, as a as a recipient of that email, and look, it was part of the demo, so I knew the email was coming. I read, I saw the email that was customized for me, and it took I don't know thirty seconds for them to put it together. I, I watched them do it live on a demo. I read the email. I was like, if if I got more emails like that, like this is an email, cold outreach email from someone I didn't know. I would respond to this email because it is so short, it is so specific, and it is so intentional, and it pushes the buttons that are important to me based on the context. And again, I go back to it's, it's not that a smart or a diligent person couldn't write a similar email, but to do that at scale, if you're doing outreach as an SDR or BDR or whatever, having platforms with AI behind them to help you customize those message, help you become more efficient and effective. And if I'm a customer and I'm thinking, well, how do these, these platforms and tools help me engage with sales better? Like you probably want more customized, like you probably want fewer outreaches just in general, if you're just getting a cold outreach but you probably want them more customized. Uh, I'll give a, a lightweight example of this. Um, there was an outreach that, that we did recently leveraging AI where the, a C-level executive at a company also owns a restaurant. Um, they um, they'd spent some time in Switzerland and so they came back to San Francisco and they opened a, a, a fondue place. And we use that uh, context, which is all public information, to write a very specific 
email to touch on, hey, you know, we went to your fondue restaurant, it was a fantastic meal, like, would love to talk to you about something else. Like being able to contextualize that um, through AI, because the, the way we got that data was through an AI platform, that makes you more efficient, efficient and effective and contextualizes you more to a customer who's on the other side thinking like, what's this cold outreach? So I'm not sure if that's exactly the answer you were kind of thinking about, but that's where I think of effectiveness. Yeah, and so one of the gripes is that it takes too long to personalize emails. So the default is, let me load a bunch of emails into Outreach or into Sales Loft and you know get people in the sequence. Good God, get me off that uh, merry-go-round. I get about 30 a day in terms of emails or in-mails and I glance through them but basically delete them all. I really deleted them all. And every once in a while I'll find someone that will catch my, that'll catch my eye and I'll either forward it to someone or I'll, I'll respond. Minimally I'll say, Hey, I, you know, I'm not the person I'm not interested, but this was really well done. And, you know, maybe even give them a referral. Um, but the hyper personalization, my uh, colleague at Sandler, John Rosso, one of the absolute best in the business uh, talked about the importance of hyper-personalization. And the definition of that was there's only one person in the world that can receive that email. And so what you talked about, that fondue example, the restaurant example, is that person is the only person in the world that could have received that email. So he or she knows that they're not in some you know, awful uh, merry-go-round of a sequence. It makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I love that. I wrote down that term that hyper-personalization. Uh, look, there is plenty of public information about me and my LinkedIn or profile. I'm often surprised, uh, almost always surprised how impersonal the cold outreaches I get are. It's usually all about the, the company, their product, their pitch, how they can help me. Uh, but the about a one in a hundred, probably the same formula as you, I'm like, that person took the time to hyper-personalize this message for me. And look, it might not be a good fit anyways, but I will at least take the time to look at it or respond. And and more and more, maybe just because I'm sensitive to it now, I'll get emails and I'll ask someone, did you use AI or even Lavender AI to write this email? And can I, I'm starting to be able to identify them because I'm in this AI world a little bit. And and sure enough, they'll write back, you know, they'll probably, they're probably surprised I responded at all. And I'm like, yeah, you know, ha yes, I did use AI to write this customized email for you, this hyper-personalized, or yeah, actually I use Lavender AI. So there, there may be a saturation point where like the AI gets so good that we're like, everything's just hyper-personalized, but like we're, we're, the pendulum hasn't swung that far yet. And I guess my context is I would rather receive 10% of the volume of outreach I do today, but hyper-personalized and relevant to me than, you know, all the stuff I get now of which less than 1% is even relevant. Well, in the post-COVID world, the number of email outreach uh, increased by 156% and the response rate decreased by 42%. So, um, yeah, the struggle is real. Let me ask you this, Ben. You talked about that person uh, that put the one-pager together on you know, how to go market to, uh, I think it was Expedia, at someone who didn't work at your company, but leveraged AI to do that. So let's take that person off the table and just say maybe they're you know uh, out in the forefront, right? They're they're a, a early early adopter, but maybe not. What are the attributes um, in interviewing, 
right? The modern interviewing and hiring the modern seller. What are the attributes that you look for that give you confidence that the type of person you're going to bring on board is the type of person that can leverage these modern technologies, leverage the uh, generative AI technology to do their job more effectively, to do more deals, bigger deals, faster deals, and build loyal customers? Yeah, so it's a good question, and and it's a timely question because I've this week and last week been actively interviewing for a variety of roles at my company, um, and and there are two things that are important to me for an interview process. Um, and to be fair, that the, the interviews I've been hiring for are a little more on the earlier side of their career, so um, you know, call them more junior sellers. Uh, but there are two things I, I look for. One. I, I look at their LinkedIn in advance of the interview. I want to see how active they are from a social selling perspective. That's easy to identify, right? You go to the LinkedIn page, you see do they post, are they active, are they not? Uh, and then two, I don't know of a way personally to uh, track their AI or Gen AI usage, but I ask them and I ask them like, I ask them two questions in the interview. I'm literally, I have two of these today. I ask them how important is social selling to you? And I already know their answer from their LinkedIn page, whether they're doing it or not. And the second question I ask him is, how important is AI or generative AI to your job and your role or for the role you're interviewing for? And I'm, I'm, I'm surprised, but I don't know if this is the right word. I'm disappointed when people are not active on LinkedIn and they're in a seller or selling world. Like I just, in this, in this modern time, like to not be on LinkedIn or at least not be active. And I'm talking like they haven't posted in a year or nine months or a long time, or they've hardly any posts. 157 connections. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they're, and they're, you know, maybe they're earlier in their careers. I don't expect them to have 10,000 connections, but if they're really not using it, uh, that's a, a, using LinkedIn, that's a red flag for me. Uh, And the second question I I ask is around AI and Gen AI, because I I haven't found a way to go, you know, check in advance of how they're doing it. So I get it, I've been getting a smattering of answers. Um, around that, I will say in full transparency, there's not many people I've interviewed recently, the, the exception of the person who uh, gave, that, gave that Expedia group example. I've not interviewed many people who have an answer to AI. I have one exception from today. Um, there was, I asked a question uh, about AI and this person said, I use, it's called SDR Copilot. Um, now, in fairness, um, it's, it was created by a person at my current company named Peter Atia. Uh, but I got the link and it's, I forget what it is, but it's an SDR co-pilot. And it's basically a, a kind of rudimentary AI platform where you type in, hey, give me the background of the chief data officer of the Walt Disney Company. And it will spit out a background in the bio. But, but at least she had an answer. Like she didn't have to stop and think, like, what do I do for AI? Like she's like, I use SDR co-pilot. Um, and I've looked at some email platform to optimize emails using it. I'm like, great, like you're already ahead of 99% of the population, you know, and this is someone in, the, in California, uh, not Silicon Valley. But, uh, but to me, as a, as a hiring manager uh, for any sales capacity role, my minimum expectation is you're actively using LinkedIn as a social selling platform. And in today's world, you better be at least thinking about and looking into how generative AI can help you, whether it's efficiency, effectiveness, uh, productivity, because if not, you're going to get left behind. And I want people who are ahead of that curve from a modern selling perspective. I had a conversation right before we got on this uh, this call, and the person shared a story about interviewing 
a, a, a professional salesperson, seasoned salesperson, and they asked the question about AI and the importance of it. And this person waxed poetically about how important it is. It's a game changer. It's not hype. It's real. And then the follow-up question, here it is, the follow-up question by the hiring leader I thought was brilliant. Uh, she said, tell me about a, uh, a time where you used AI anywhere um, in the process to identify, progress, close, do anything related to your to your role, and the person was like, mm. "Yeah, um, right." And and the answer could have been, "Oh, I you know sent a thank you email and I put it in." I mean, this person was just looking for something, kind of like you said. The the the, uh, the bar is low right now. It would be interesting. This time next year, January of 2025, we have this conversation. I bet, I bet your experiences are going to be drastically different in terms of interviewing uh, salespeople. Yeah, just, a, just a guess. Um, all right, so but, uh, kind of just pivoting a, a little bit. Um, speaking of interviewing, right? We're looking at the modern seller. We talked about AI. What are attributes that you're looking for when hiring today's modern seller? Yeah, there, there, there's four things I, I think about, um, again, depending on the role and uh, the, the, the profile we're hiring towards. But th there's four things. So the first is, um, does the person have and can they demonstrate the grit and tenacity to do the job? At the end of the day, it's a sales job. We're going to get rejection. We're going to get no's. So do they have the grit and tenacity and can they prove it um, through a story or an example of their work history? Second, um, do they have a process or a methodology by which they go about their job? Um, so either they've done training or they, you know, the, the best sellers don't just show up every day and kind of figure out what to do. They have a process and a methodology. Um, the third is, um, I prefer to hire strategic thinkers. So I think of it as uh, I prefer people who play chess over checkers, uh, because in this, uh, enterprise SaaS selling world, we have to be thinking a few steps ahead of the competition or the process, um, the use cases, the business value. So being a strategic thinker is important. Uh, and the fourth thing I interview for is coachability. Uh, so from the from the top down, you know, my experience at companies, not just in sales leadership, like we're we're all in this together. We're all trying to figure out how to be successful, and we all have to be coachable. So much of enterprise SaaS selling these days is a team effort uh, and a collaborative effort. Uh, and gone are the days where the lone wolf can go out and try to do everything by themselves and put the whole world on their shoulders. So that that coachability or collaborative uh, persona is the fourth thing I typically look for. Uh, and if you had to pick one of those, uh, is there one that sticks out more than the other? Yes. So the um, the strategic thinker, so a couple of things. One, I, I've not found a way to teach grit and tenacity or uh, strategic thinking. Um, maybe I'm just missing it, but I, it's hard, I haven't found a way to do that. I can teach a process and a methodology. If someone's earlier in their career, and they just haven't put through the training or they haven't found a system that works, like I can teach process and methodology. Um, but I, I haven't found a way to teach someone to be a strategic thinker if they're transactional or to have the grit and tenacity. If they're, I mean, like that's kind of your sales chops, either you're going to do it or not. Um, so so of, the, and of the four things, um, the, the process and methodology is the one I worry about the least because I can coach to that and help with that. Um, but from a profile perspective, if they don't have the other three, like it's pretty hard for me to move them forward. 
Yeah. And, you know, I think th those two that you mentioned, strategic thinking and grit and tenacity, right, those are hardwired uh, attributes. Um, I, they can be encouraged, uh, but they're much harder to teach and coach than than the others, for, for, for sure. Uh, a lot of people have, uh, have certainly struggled with that. Um, what, what are you seeing out there? And, you know, you gave the example of the person who used AI to, you know, build a one pager to be able to, uh, you know, put the value proposition of the company together. Are you seeing, you know, what are the other, what are other top reps doing to differentiate themselves and create a better buying experience for clients. Anything come to mind? Yeah, I would say the 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 pendulum swung, you know, post COVID, you know, where COVID was a virtual only world for a while. Um, the best sellers who I've been working with the last few years, now that the world has mostly opened up, are figuring out how to do stuff in person. Um, so in the last, I don't know, eighteen months or so, we've put a lot of company effort and dollars behind in-person events that are often driven uh, regionally and locally by the local reps. So for example, uh, I'll have a, a rep in San Diego uh, come to me and say, hey, I think we, I have an idea. Um, what if we did a movie theater buyout? Um, here's the rough budget and here's what we can expect from a pipeline and an attendance perspective. Um, and we'll, and we'll, do a, um, we'll do a movie premiere of, um, I think it was Avatar 2. And I'll do a 60 second recording uh, of a professional video that will open up the movie and say, hey, welcome to the theater. We're glad you and your family are here. Um, my company thanks you. Our, you know, our company does this and this and this, but we're not here to talk about us. We want you to enjoy the movie. And you've got some branding around the room. The ability, um, now that we're all back out in the world doing stuff in person, the best reps are differentiating themselves by finding ways to get people out and about and doing things in person. Um, you know, the, the pendulum had to swing to, uh, you know, remote for a while in COVID. Not everyone's back to working in the office or being local, but the best reps are definitely finding a way to leverage in-person events to differentiate themselves from the competition. Uh, what's old is new again, uh, but I agree. Like, that's fantastic. Ben, what do you say to the person who, and I hear this a lot, a lot of people, you know, griping about it, which is, oh yeah, you know, now we have to fill out 20, you know, forms to go on the road. And what I'm seeing is some people just say, if I get to fill out that much stuff, I'm just, I'm not going to do it. So there's probably the people that just don't do it. And then there's the people that go the extra mile. And what I hear you saying is the people that go the extra mile to cost, justify it, propose it and ask for it and think it through. Um, they, they get the nod, they get the approval and they're probably doing better than the people that, that aren't. Yeah. I, I, the, just before we jumped on this conversation, I, I was on with my marketing counterpart and, um, so, so I don't know the bureaucracy of every company, but in my opinion, it's the responsibility of the sales leader to remove the bureaucratic hurdles to do the events that are important. So in the examples I shared about a movie theater buyout or a rep, an AE comes to me with an idea, my, my first and foremost um, effort is how do I make that event happen as quickly and as, as efficiently and effectively as possible? And I tell my team, I'm like, look, we're either all in or we're not doing it at all. So if we're going to advocate for an event and we're going to request budgeting from marketing and support or whatever we need, 
Um, we're going to do it 100 percent or we're going to do it. We're just not going to do it at all. Like we're all or nothing. Um, and thankfully, my teams have had a reputation of doing really good events because we keep the visibility and the focus very high on it. And I remind the, the, the my team, the selling team, like we only get to continue doing these events as we can prove that they're being successful. So, for example, we have to do the attribution. So, yes, there's some administrative overhead. We're going to do an event. You know, 50 people show up. We're going to build some pipeline. Marketing at some point is going to look back at that and say, hey, what's the attribution from the people who showed up, the pipeline that was created, what closed? Marketing uses that data to make decisions about future budget and future um, events. So we have to do the attribution. And when we do an event, um, to your point, like, yes, there's some administrative overhead. I try to take that off the plate of the team so they can focus on doing the event. Um, but I tell the team, we're, we're all or nothing. We're going to focus on the event for days or weeks or months in advance. And our goal is to have 0% attrition. Um, and look, we're targeting that. No one wants to you know, uh, plan for attrition. No. But we've been, we've been lucky that most of our events have been very well attended. Um, and in my last company, uh, we had a reputation as a team, and maybe this rounds out your question, that we so effectively did events that our CEO uh, told our CMO, I want to reallocate budget away from our digital marketing spend into events because we're doing the CEO roundtables or CIO, CTO roundtables, dinners, panel discussions, fireside chats. We're investing in these local events that we're sponsoring. We're getting a big return and it's not a disrespect to the digital marketing budget. But when these events are done well and done right and have put the right focus on, the leaders are leading from the front and attending and participating, they're a big return for any company. Yeah, um, success, uh, you know, money follows success. So yeah. um, good for you. That's a, that's a great story. And oh, by the way, cost justification, revenue attribution, that, that's the real world. That, those skills, just to be able to get your um, you know, in-person marketing event off the ground are transferable to uh, how to sell uh, just about any software uh, yeah. you know, or, or technology for sure. Uh, so you're, you're at Alation. Um, you got there fairly recently couple of questions, Ben. What does Alation do? What's their business? And what attracted you there? Yeah. So as you mentioned, I just joined Alation last week. So it's a new uh, new place for me, but not a, uh, not a space I'm unfamiliar with. Uh, Alation at, the, at its core is a data intelligence platform. We specialize in data management, particularly around data catalog, uh, data governance. Uh, the company was the partner of the year for data governance in 2023 for both Snowflake and Databricks, which I think says something about the leadership Alation has in the data governance space. Um, and the company was founded in 2012 um, with a need to help people search and discover data across the enterprise more effectively. Um, and so today, um, the technology helps people find, understand, and govern enterprise-level data. Um, and really it helps people answer their questions more effectively through the lens of data. So in a nutshell, that's sort of who Alation is and what we do from a data intelligence platform. And what attracted you there? Yeah, so I've, I've long been in the data space. I mean, back to you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago when you and I were at Oracle, um, data has been foundational yeah, to my ago. career. Oh, it's, been, it's been a while, Matt, yeah. <laughs> uh, I spent, uh, I spent a lot of my career in the data world, and you used to hear the cliche, you still hear it, that data is the new oil. I'm a big believer that um, data is what drives the world. As you mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm, I'm from and I live in Silicon Valley, so I see the world through the lens of data. 
Alation was really attractive to me because of the growth path they're on. Um, they're about a 10-year-old company. Their, their revenue is growing at a, at a steady clip. Uh, I knew some people at the company, which always, always helps with the uh, having some inside advantage to knowing what's going on. But more foundationally, uh, I both competed against Alation and I partnered with them. And to be on this side of the table and being um, kind of seeing what's under the hood in my first few weeks is really exciting. And it's a place that um, feels like a really good fit for me. I, I, you know, you use the words uh, competition and partner in the same sentence. And again, it just reflects another conversation that I had today. And many of the conversations that I've been having recently, which is many uh, companies who were perceived as competitors, uh, companies are finding a way to get together and partner. Um, and those really those technology partnerships are really breaking down a lot of walls and tr providing tremendous opportunities, not only for both companies, but for the customers also. So love, love hearing that. Um, you know, Ben, as we as we close out, people like you who are you know, really wired to focus on coaching and developing people, you know, building an organization that can scale, continuous improvement, et cetera, et cetera. Usually they're, they've had great coaching modeled to them. Um, I have two questions for you. You can answer them in, you know, either order. The, the two questions are, tell me about a person who's had an impact on your career. Their coaching has had an impact on your career. And if I ask you the question, who's the best coach um, that you've ever heard of or, or come across, who would it be? Uh, what would you say? So two questions right there at once at the end. Yeah. So, so, uh, so I'll, I'll answer the first question slightly different than the way you asked. Um, I, I'm old enough um, that the arc of my career, I've had many coaches or managers and there, there's really when I think of um, my career, there's really five coaches or managers who've had an outsized impact and influence on my life. Uh, the first is uh, a guy named Jim Kurtowitz. Uh, he gave me my first sales job at Oracle um, 20 odd years ago. Took a chance on me. Like, you know, we, we all need our first uh, break to try out the sales uh, profession. And Jim Kurtowitz uh, gave me that chance. The, the second, and I don't, I don't mean this gratuitously, is you. Um, you know, Matt, you put me in a role. Uh, to, to do an uh, international experience in Argentina and put a lot of trust and faith in me. And um, I really learned a lot from the opportunity and the experience of doing an expatriate assignment for Oracle under your leadership. Um, the, the third person is uh, a gentleman by the name of Dana Higley. Uh, he was a sales leader at Oracle. He gave me my first chance at being uh, what Oracle calls a key account director and I managed uh, the relationship between Oracle and the Walt Disney Company globally. But it was the first opportunity I had to really strategically manage one global customer and learn what it means to have um, the, the global responsibility of one macro customer to really be deep with only one, one account. Mm. Um, the, the fourth is um, the person who hired me into Informatica, Ron Spratt. Uh, I worked for him for seven years across two companies. So you can imagine that breadth of time and company span. I've learned a lot from him as a leader and a coach. Um, and he's the type of leader who we make bingo cards out of because he's got these phrases and sayings um, like control the controllables um, that, um, that, uh, are, that resonate very much in the sales world. But a lot of the way I think about my sales leadership, my sales management comes from what I learned from, from Ron Spratt. 
And the fifth and final is um, uh, former CRO, Eric's, one of my former CROs, Eric Salva. And he said a phrase to me when I took a leadership role at his company that took me probably three months to process, but I still think about to this day. I got promoted from an individual contributor role into a sales leadership role. And at kickoff that year, a few months after my promotion, he pulled me aside and said, congrats on the promotion. You know, you've earned it. Well done. Um, you're not here to be their friends. Hmm. And I didn't, I didn't know what that meant. I mean, I knew what it meant, but I didn't really understand or appreciate or process that for a few months. And what he had inferred was, Hey, you've been promoted to lead the team that you were a part of as an individual, individual contributor. Now you're going to be their leader. You're here to do a job and to get the business done, not to be their friends. And I, I always think back on Eric's wisdom then because it's helped me like stay the course in many of the career decisions I've made. Um, but, the, you know, yes, we build friendships in the role, but, um, but uh, you know, reminding yourself you're here to do a job and uh, be tough when it needs to be and being kind when it needs to be like that. You're not here to be their friends all the time was a good reminder for me. Well, um, a very thoughtful list. Um, thanks for taking the time to share that and, and certainly proud to be uh, one of those five. That was certainly, we, uh, I think we all learned a lot from uh, the experience with the, the team that we built out in, uh, in Argentina and uh, had, had a lot of fun doing it. Um, but that, that last one with, uh, with Eric, and I got to know Eric a little bit, we're, we're doing, we have a whole podcast coming out just around that topic of not being their friends and the challenge with wanting to be liked and wanting to be that, you know, the, the wrong definition of servant leadership, thinking you have to please everybody on your team and the negative repercussions of that. So, um, you know, appreciate you calling that out specifically. Um, so Ben, as we close out any, any advice for our audience and, and, you know, let me frame it a little bit more. Any advice for those people like you, when you got that advice from Salva about, you know, when you became a new leader, so new leaders or aspire people who are aspiring to become, you know, first time leaders, any advice for them? Yeah. I mean, a couple of things come to mind. Um, and look, the advice is worth twice what you're paying me for here. Um, which is zero, by the way. Uh, I, I think um, some good advice that I've had is uh, continuous education, continuously be curious about the world. Um, the the roles that sales leaders have today are, to your point earlier, they're going to be different a year from now. They were different than a year or two ago. Sales leaders and leaders of all lines of business had to navigate through a pandemic. Um, we had to navigate through going back to office. We've had to navigate different things. In my experience, um, the best leaders, sales or otherwise, are continuously evolving and continuously learning. So be hungry, be thirsty, be humble. Um, you know, be kind to those around you. Um, you know, I always think about um, from the customer perspective, the way I've been most successful as a sales individual contributor or leader is thinking about um, what the customer is trying to solve for, what's important to them. It could be a whole host of things, whether it's personal, or professional. I apply the same context to being a sales leader on my, the, the people on my team, the people I work with, like they all have lives, they have families, they have things that are important to them. And for every one of them, it's a little bit different and understanding what's important to them and how I can lead them best um, is, um, is the advice I'd have. And I would, I would give the analogy. Hopefully this isn't too corny, but if you've watched the show, Ted Lasso, um, 
he gives a lot of great management ideas and tips in his, you know, managing, you know, this American, uh, you know, football coach, uh, American football coach who goes to, you know, coach a British uh, soccer team or a football team over there. And, um, and there, the, the most recent episode I watched like a week or so ago of Ted Lasso talked about that exact theme about to get the best out of your people, treat them really well, both on the pitch or the, the, the playing field as you do in life, because they have both sides are important to them and really understand what's important to your people, how you can help them both professionally and personally, and they'll, they'll work their best and their hardest for you. So maybe a little cheesy referencing Ted Lasso, but I do think there's some good management lessons for everyone out there in that kind of show. Gotta love Ted Lasso. Hey, I, I committed the uh, interview faux pas and asked you a, a two-part question and then let you answer part of it, but not the other part. So I'm gonna circle back. Uh, best coach of all time, like whatever you think is a coach, who, who is it? Yeah, so in my, in my life, the best coach uh, who has impacted me was my high school soccer coach, a uh, gentleman by the name of Len Rennery. Um, you know, it, it was a formidable time in my life. It was in high school. He was a former British Premier League soccer player, uh, coaching our high school soccer team in the Bay Area. Uh, and he, to this day, um, I think about his style of, uh, a, a, in this case, a coach of a, a, a soccer team. Um, but what it meant to to me as a young young adult coming into the world as a, a high schooler, because um, he was he was tough. Uh, he was fair, um, and he never asked us as a team to do anything that he wouldn't do. And I mean, from a training perspective, and he, you know, he wasn't our, we were 16, 17, 18 year old kids. He was whatever he was back then in his forties. He ran every lap we did, did every exercise we did. Um, and he, he truly was a definition of leading from the front. And look, he didn't have to, right? He was the coach. He was older. He'd you know, done his life in, in professional soccer, but, um, watching his style and um and his ability to lead from the front and you know maybe maybe it worked because it culminated in our team going undefeated my senior year and winning the, the state championship um but but our ability as a team to buy into him as a leader uh, his ability to lead from the front and uh pull us together as a team um for me as a life coach like that high school soccer experience at len runnery was the thing i've carried with me to this day well, kudos to uh, to Len. Great story, and I love the word you used there, buy-in. Um, great coaches get their people to buy-in. Otherwise, it's it's useless. Um, there's many, many different ways to do that. Well, Ben, I think it, that we could leave it right there. That's a, that's a solid place to end. Uh, took so much from this conversation. We talked about AI and the importance of embracing AI, how to leverage AI, even with little little things. Uh, we talked about the importance of being curious, being coachable. Uh, the myth that just because you have more people does not mean more revenue. And um, the importance of you know getting back in the field, like post-COVID, get out there, how to do it. I think those are some great tips uh, for, for people that are, are watching and listening. Thanks a lot for investing your time with, uh, with me today and with Coach to Scale. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Matt. I've enjoyed it. All right. And for everybody out there that's uh, listening, uh, if you made it this far, thanks so much. Um, hit the like button. More importantly, engage online, leave a comment. Let us know what you liked. Let us know what you didn't like. Uh, let us know what you'd like to see more of. Uh, we'd, we'd appreciate that. We're looking to provide the best 
content for you. Um, and until next time, coach them if you want to keep them. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Coach to Scale, How Modern Leaders Build Coaching Cultures. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at coachem.io. That's C-O-A-C-H-E-M dot I-O. And follow us on Twitter at Coachem Now. See you all next week. Thanks for joining. And remember, coach them if you want to keep them.